we got a great week coming. I hope you're going to get involved with uh, some of the stuff, the Sedar meal, um, which is, I'm from Texas, I keep wanting to call it cedar, because <laughs> that's what makes good barbecue. Um, but we have a Sedar meal coming up, and uh, that's just such a great time. We'll fill this room. Uh, a handful of you guys have RSVP'd. Um, please, I know it's the steamboat way, but please don't wait till the last second, okay? Uh, but that's Thursday night, and um, Anyway, we'll have tables here, and a full meal will be taken care of, and it'll be very much like the, the Passover supper in every way possible, and uh, to remember what Christ did uh, with his disciples on that night. And then uh, Friday is Good Friday. We have a big community service. I'm so excited about um, partnering with all the pastors in town, or most of the pastors in town um, for the, at the Catholic Church. But what I think, the, honestly, the best part is not the pastors, and it's not me. It's the Steamboat Orchestra. Uh, which is just beautiful, and so if you really want like a sacred Friday night, uh, they, I mean, it's just it's such a cool event, such a cool night, so I'm so glad. Last year, we had Battle of the Worship Bands. You guys, come on. That's ridiculous, and that's what we did, and so I'm so glad we're not doing that this year. Uh, we got the orchestra back, and that's the way it should be, so it'll be a, such, a, such a neat, neat night, um, and then, of course, uh, Silent Saturday, and then uh, Easter Sunday, so uh, just one service. I hear it's spring break, and I, or some of you guys have already told me you're not going to be here. Uh, some of you are already traveling, and, and that's okay. Um, Jesus still loves you, um, but the judgment will be more severe for some. Uh, anyway, uh, so just one service, 10 o'clock, um, short and sweet sermon about the final mountain that Jesus uh, died on, the Mount Gagatha, and so uh, we'll look at that. But uh, So today, then, is Palm Sunday, and today is the day that Jesus would have ridden in to Jerusalem, coming down the Mount of Olives. So he would have gone down the Mount of Olives into a valley and up into Jerusalem towards the temple. And it's a big day. It's the day the king has come, the Messiah has come to, to rule. This is what they were expecting. This is what Israel was expecting. They were looking forward to this day. And so as he rides in on a colt and a, and, or a donkey, and the reason he does that is because the battle's already won. He's not riding in on a stallion. He doesn't need that because the battle's already won. I mean, this is imagery here. And so the the palms are being laid down because his feet are clean. And we don't want even his donkey to touch things that are unclean. And so uh, all this this worship of Jesus is happening as he rides in to Jerusalem. And he doesn't waste any time. Many of you are probably familiar with the the events of this week. But one of those things that he does is, is he quickly goes straight. This is the day, Palm Sunday, he goes straight to the temple and gets extremely frustrated with a righteous anger and turns over the tables, right? And he sees what the people have done to the house of God, and he says, this is not a place for you to make money. This is not a place for you to, to make a profit. This is not a, you're, you're distorting, you're perverting all that, the, all that the temple should be, and he just loses it. And Indiana Jones-style whip, fedora, nut, I mean, just... Crazy, okay? No, just kidding. But he goes, he gets upset, rightfully so. And then right after that, he starts preaching. And he starts preaching about the kingdom. He starts preaching the gospel. And then while he's doing that, he's healing. It's all Palm Sunday. Very, very busy day. It's a busy time of year, too, because everybody's coming to Jerusalem for Passover. It's one of the annual feasts he had to attend in Jerusalem. And so all these people are coming to Jerusalem for Passover. And so honestly, Jerusalem looks like a KOA, right? There's tents everywhere and RVs and Coleman's and, you know, all the stuff, right? Smart Wool's sponsoring it. I mean, it's all... I thought it was funny this morning. So there's all kinds of stuff happening, right? There's just a lot of stuff's happening. And so they're 
So it's a very, very busy time. Um, and so it, it should not be lost on us that Jesus then has his campsite reserved. And it, he has a very special relationship with a man that's never named in Scripture, but he owns a garden on the Mount of Olives. And it's called the Garden of Gethsemane. And every night he retreats. Jesus retreats to this Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples, and they have their own special reserved campsite in this very beautiful garden on the hillside of the Mount of Olives. Monday and Tuesday, tomorrow and Tuesday, he'll go back to Jerusalem and he'll preach again. He'll engage with some spirited debate with the religious figures of the time, and, uh, and it'll be a, it'll be a It'll be an amazing day for him. And he'll also preach the gospel, and he'll also heal the sick, and he'll do all the things he's done. Wednesday. On Wednesday, Jesus will hang back. He'll stay at the campsite, snacking on olives, you know, letting the fire burn a little longer than normal. And they're just going to hang out. And one of the disciples is going to say, man, we're just hanging out. This is a great, beautiful morning. Look at that temple. That thing is going to be incredible. And Jesus says, that thing's coming down. And like, what? And he gives a whole sermon. They spend the whole day, all of Wednesday, just sitting there, listening to Jesus say, here is how the end of the world will happen. Uh, pretty wiped out. It's been a long week. It's already Wednesday. <laughs> you know how it feels. Right? They tighten up camp. They go back to bed. They wake up. It's Thursday. Going back to town. On your way to town, somebody will have an upper room waiting for us to celebrate the Passover. So he tells his disciples, a few of them, go find that upper room. He'll know them when you see him. And we're going to celebrate the Passover together. And we're going to do the Last Supper. And so they have this very famous Last Supper scene um, with Jesus. And it's there that he washes their feet. The very last thing he wants to do with them, one of the very last things he wants to do with them is remind them that they are servants. And that his servant is not greater than his master, or is greater than his master. The servant is the lifestyle of the gospel. It's the lifestyle of the Christian. We are to serve in the same way that Christ has served us. And so he washes their feet. And he tells Judas to go do what he needs to do. And then he serves the last supper, the last communion, if you will. And they partake of unleavened bread, and they drink wine, and they celebrate what will be the Last Supper. And he tells them, you know, you are eating of my body tonight, and the, those who drink of this wine are drinking of the blood of the new covenant that will be shed for you and for the many of, for the forgiveness of sins. This is a very sacred moment. And they do as they always do. The night has come. Friday is the next day. Where are they going to go? Back to the campsite, Garden of Gethsemane. The Bible says they sang a hymn. It's probably not accurate. It's probably the Greek word psalmos, which is the Hebrew psalm. Probably sang a psalm, which would have been more Jewish. One of the Messianic psalms probably found in the Psalter, in the middle part of your Bible. And they just sang, like just 11 dudes. I guess 12 include Jesus, right? 11 dudes and one man, right? They're walking back to the garden, and they get to the garden. And I don't know if you, this is a picture. I, you can go there today. It's, I took that picture. You, you can probably tell I took that picture. Um, but it's a beautiful place now. It's, it's walled off. It's on the side of Mount of Olives. And um, the, I didn't get a picture today of this, but there are, there are a, two or three trees there that based, you know how to measure how old a tree is by the circumference of its trunk. There are two, three trees there that are obviously 2,000 years old that would have been there at the time of this event that we're going to read about today. It's, 
it's amazing to see them. I mean, you just want to stare at them and be like, you saw this? Like, it's so cool. Um, at first, I was skeptical. I didn't know that trees could do, olive trees could do that, but they can. They can live a very, very long time. And so uh, these, uh, all the trees are, are sitting there, and they're pulled away, and they're pulled away from the city noise, and they're pulled away from the chaos, and they're not stuck in you know, tent-to-tent campsites, and they're, you know, they're kind of by themselves. And then that's where we pick up today in Luke chapter 22, verse 39. And he came out and went, and as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, or definitely the Garden of Gethsemane, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Many of you are, many of you are familiar with the scene, and we're only going to look at a handful of verses here because I want to make sure we cover all that can be applied to these verses. But So when they, they arrive at the, the scene on the Mount of Olives at the Garden of Gethsemane, and he tells his disciples, pray, without very much information, although they should know by now. This should be obvious to them, but you know the disciples, they kind of, they miss it often, and we would probably too. And so he says, pray that they may not be tempted. And my first question when I was reading the text is, okay, I know what Jesus is about to go through, but what are, what's their temptation? Like, what, are, what is it that they're struggling with? Why does God tell them to pray? Why doesn't, or Jesus, why doesn't Jesus tell them to pray for him? Why is he praying, why are they praying for their own temptation, and it, it becomes, there's only really one great answer, and the great answer is this. Temptation is its heaviest when suffering is its heaviest. The temptation to walk away from faith is so heavy when suffering is great. And excuse me, I'm not using this as a cuss word. It is literally true. All hell is about to come in, on to the disciples and Jesus it is all coming after them. Every single bit of it is coming after these men. And Jesus is telling them, you're about to experience more of hell than anybody. You're about to go through it with me. Pray that you're not tempted because when we go through the hard times, we are tempted. And of course, that, as you know, Peter will fall. He'll, he'll, he'll deny Christ three times. They'll all run uh, John will be the only one left at the cross. He's the only disciple who actually goes to the cross. And it's there that we see Jesus give his mother Mary to John to be taken care of because Jewish boys take care of their mamas. Maybe that's a Mother's Day sermon, but uh, they, they take care of their mamas. And so he takes care of his mama in his death. Jesus takes care of his mom in his death. And so John's the only one. The rest all fell. And I think it's interesting that Peter, even in his great fall, even though he denied Jesus three times with his words, he never denied him with his heart. But even in that denial, Jesus still gave him grace, still gave him forgiveness. But the temptation to run, the temptation to leave God in suffering is so, so evident. When I went to, um, my faith really took off in college. It's such a counterintuitive statement. Most people, their faith goes away in college. Um, but that's when I, I became a Christian when I was a senior in high school, and I went away to college and stumbled for about a year. And then around the time I turned 21, I, my life changed, which is really bad timing if you're a party guy. And uh, when it's finally legal, I'm like, I don't want to do that anymore. So, uh, um, I, so I just totally changed my life has started walking with Christ, and I, I made some really great Christian friends. And we were in this very hard—Stephen F. Austin is one of the biggest party schools in Texas. 
And, and there's about a thousand students who loved Jesus at the time there. And, and we were all from different denominations, and we all had different ways of approaching the Lord, but we all gathered for this one event called, uh, this is the 90s, so please forgive it. And it probably started in the 80s, but it's called The Great Escape. <laughs> So cheesy. Anyway, and so we all gathered for this worship experience at the Great Escape, and, and we just, we worshiped, and this is like when worship with guitars was like brand new, but for me, that's all I knew. Like, I didn't know there was another way until I went to like pastor a church and went, whoa, what is that? You know, organs and, you know, anyway, so this is like, so passion music was happening, you know, passion 99 started around that time, and, or 97, it actually started in 97, and so all this music's coming out, it's being cranked out with guitars, and it's just wonderful, and I'm so happy, like I'm loving it, and, uh, and so um, we would go to these worship events, and then we'd hear preaching, and then we'd worship, and it was just so great, and there's always this guy, and we'd pack out this first Baptist Nacogdoches, and we'd just make all the old people mad, because all the kids are in there worshiping Jesus. And, but there's this guy over to the side, and I believe the words are, I believe the description is correct, but he's paraplegic. And he's in a wheelchair, and he controls it with his hand. And so when he sang, it was very awkward. And so he would sing really, really loud. He was very loud. He, you would see him like weeping and barely being able to get the words out worshiping Jesus on the front row. And it would always hit me, and I barely knew him, but it always hit me. as like, how does he not blame God for the way he is? And, I, and I'd be, when I grad, right before we all graduated, I remember going to him and telling him, your faith, your faith in suffering has always inspired me. I don't understand how you do it. But your faith in suffering has been able to, it has taught me that you know, suffering is relative and that you can love Jesus no matter what. And I thanked him, and he, 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 he was very simple. He's like, you're welcome. Yeah. And I was just like, man, he's so, so, so simple, such a simple love. And it's that kind of suffering that I see so many people, they didn't have an opportunity to see a person like that who totally loves Jesus, born with a condition who could have blamed God for it all, but instead he leaned into God. And that's how we were to go into suffering. And that's the prayer that Jesus, that's the command that Jesus is giving his disciples that night. You're about to suffer hard for following me. And you need to lean in, not run away. The answer is found in leaning in. And I want to just take a second before we move on to the next two verses, and then we're done. So just relax. Um, some people, one of the things I keep seeing over and over and over again in the narrative of culture is that because there's suffering in the world, there must not be a God. Or because there's suffering in the world, that's why God is bad, right? Why would you follow a God that allows for suffering in the world? Can I just, can we just deal with, think theological, I'm going to go a little deep with you. Theological, you ready? Everybody got their theological hats on? No emotions, just teaching, okay? The Bible teaches that the reason there is sin in the world is because there, is, there was a tree in a garden, and God asked Adam and Eve to not eat of that tree. And every day they didn't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Every day they didn't eat of that tree, they would be worshiping, loving, following, doing what God commanded. And in so doing those things, they loved him. If there's not the tree, there's no opportunity for them to choose God. It's always choosing God. There's no, there's no love. 
right? If I'm the only man on the earth and there's Angie and a, you know, and Angie, and she chooses me, right? I don't say, oh, you've loved me so much. You'd be like, no, you're just the only option. <laughs> That's it. So I just kind of went with what I had, right? There's not a lot of love there. But if there's lots of men on the earth, right, and they all are almost as good looking as I am, and she chooses me, I go, oh, you, loved, you chose me out of all those guys. Yes, I love you. I chose you for your stunning good looks and broken leg and back. No, I chose you, right? So whenever there's options, love is evident. So God puts that. You wonder, why was the tree ever there? The tree is there because God needed to provide an option. You can choose yourself. You can choose sin. Or you can choose me. And every day, they chose God except for one. And it's on that day that sin came into the world. And so the sin then is the result of man's choice to not love God. Stay with me. Sin leads to suffering. It leads to the knowledge of life and death. It leads to suffering. The reason we have hurricanes, the reason we have cancer, the reason we have tsunamis, the reason we have death and destruction, all the things that we have is because sin is in this world. Heaven will not have suffering, correct? You with me on that? Hallelujah, amen, right? So there is no suffering there, right? Every tree, every, excuse me, every tear will be dried. God makes all things new. So the reason there is suffering in the world is because there's sin in the world. And the reason there's sin in the world is because God is giving us a choice to love him every day. You can't have love without the choice, right? You can't do it. And so God, God has to leave suffering in the world because he has to leave sin in the world because he has to continue to give man a choice to love him until this gig is wrapped up, right? And so doing, and, and God is being patient in so doing. And so sin remains in the world and suffering remains in the world because God loves us and he wants us to love him, right? You see that? That's the reason. That's the apologetic, the theological, the philosophical reason for doing so. And then I, I just, I had to, I did this as well. But because there's sin in the world then, I just want you to get this. Loving God can lead to suffering. It, it can. You can have a busted adoption. You could have a marriage that you've worked your whole life to, to save and it just didn't work out. I mean, following God can lead to suffering. You can be overly generous. I mean, who knows what could happen, but something can happen bad because you followed God into the mission field, into a different culture, into a different place. Whatever it is, it can lead to suffering. But I think it's fascinating here is the same can be said for God, that because of sin in the world, loving us led God to suffer, that Jesus paid the ultimate price. He suffered more than any of us will ever experience by being separated from the Father, and that he suffered too because of sin and suffering in the world. Our God is not immune of this. He doesn't, he doesn't look at you and go, oh man, I really wish I understood what you're going through right now. He completely understands what you're going through. And that's why whenever we're going through suffering, Jesus' prayer for us is even pray that you may not be tempted. Lean in to God at these moments. Don't pull away because he understands completely what you're going through and he's the only answer. Now the 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 imagery turns to Jesus in verse 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven and strengthened him. 
And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. I just mentioned to you the Garden of Eden. I think it's, it's a really important parallel that you see in Scripture. That the garden, in the Garden of Eden, we had the first man is tempted to be wise in his own eyes and to not follow God. And the result is leading all of humanity into sin. Here again, we see the Garden of Gethsemane, another garden. From garden to garden, we see the new man who is being tempted to go his own way, but instead follows God, and humanity is saved from sin. Jesus is the fulfillment of these things. He prays, he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Uh, the word cup is a metaphor. I think you know that. It's obvious. Um, but it's kind of, we don't say that, right? I mean, maybe you say, like, my cup. No, you don't say that. Nobody says that. We say things like, I'm going through a hard season or I'm on a journey. You know, We say things like that. And it's, it's the same kind of phrase that Jesus is using. It would be like him saying, God, remove the season from me or take me off this journey or take me off this path. But instead, he uses the word cup. You see it often in Scripture, and I think it's interesting. Uh, Psalm 16.5 says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot, my life. Uh, Speaking to the Pharisees, Jesus said this to them in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and that the outside may be clean. He says, you're making your circumstances look so good. You dress right. Nothing's ever wrong. People say, how can I pray for you? You say, I've got no, no issues. Everything's always good with you. You scrub the outside to make it look good, but I know deep in your hearts it's a mess, right? So it's always, the cup is this metaphor for, for how we, we live this life. And so Jesus is like, man, God, please remove this cup from me. And then we see some very interesting things described here in verse 43. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. So that's, that's really cool. I don't know what to do with that, except that's awesome. That's happened a few times for him. And maybe that's where the strength happens for us as well. But verse 44, I want to drill down in so you can really get a picture of what Jesus is dealing with here. And being in agony, uh, the Greek word is um, agonos. Um, or agony, excuse me, and it means agony, but it means a little bit more than that. Once you see more than that, literally, it could be this. Someone fighting a battle with sheer fear. Did you hear about the guy running who got attacked by the mountain lion? Did you hear about it? Of course. He's like, I think we're going to put a statue of him up downtown, right? I mean, he's like legend now, right? I mean, attacked by a mountain lion. He's jogging, no firearms, right? And he, dis- he kills the mountain lion. <laughs> Yes, right? Let me tell you, he was fighting not out of confidence, out of sheer fear. I win this fight or die, right? You ever been there? I haven't been there. That is where Jesus is. He is praying. When it says he's praying in agony, he is fighting for his life. And he has so much stress. And then it talks about this sweat that drops like blood in verse 44. Um, it's, not, it's not literally bloody sweat, although that is an actual event that does occur that doesn't need to be explained here. It says it was like drops of sweat or drops of blood. In other words, he was sweating profusely. Like if you cut an artery, you know, the blood would be coming out so quickly. So the blood, his sweat was just constant, and he's not jogging. He's not working out. He's just praying. That's intense stress. Do you know what he's having? 
he's having a panic attack. He's having a panic attack. That's what this is. There's no other way to look at it. That's what a psychologist would say. He is having an anxiety attack completely. And wouldn't you? You're 33 years old. You're the son of God. You've done nothing but help people, heal people, love people, teach about prayer, show people the true way to live and follow God. And it's a way of grace. It's not a way of more legalism. It's not a way of more religion. It's just peace. He's never thrown a rock at somebody. He's never hurt anybody except that little thing with the whip, but he was allowed to do that. He's never done anything wrong. He does not deserve what's about to happen to him. And he knows he's about to face the most torturous tool ever created by the mind of man to kill somebody. He's going to drown without ever going underwater. And he's going to do it naked in front of the whole city, in front of everybody here for Passover. Tell me this isn't a difficult thing for him. He's absolutely stressed out. So in closing, some applications then about what Jesus suffered. First, anxiety and fear is not a sin. If our Savior did it, it's not a sin. If he felt it, it's not a sin. It's not a sin to feel anxious or to feel fearful about something. It's okay. It's what you do with the anxiety, right? It's, it's, do you sin with the anxiety? It's the same thing, like be angry, but do not, do not sin. It's what, those feelings are real, so don't feel like you failed because you feel those things. They're, they're real feelings, and it's okay. So ha, in the anxiety, though, don't pull away. But first, I want to re, just relieve you of any unknown pressure you may put on yourself if you ever feel anxious or fear, because I know sometimes the church pushes this thing like you shouldn't feel those things, but it's okay. Our Savior's been there. And I think that's part of the beauty of it. It's like, that's one of those great things. It's like, I'm feeling so anxious. And then maybe you're not going to face the cross and separation from God for a moment, um, but you are fearful or anxious about something, and you are not alone. You follow a Savior who has been there. Jesus, again, doesn't look down at you and be like, man, why can't you just get it together? I don't understand. No, he's like, yeah, I remember the garden. Hebrews talks about the fact that we have a Savior who identifies with us, who's there for us, and he knows the temptations that we are feeling exactly. The second thing we see in these moments of suffering, the second thing that we can apply to our suffering the way that Christ did is pray. Jesus prayed. Did you notice how long his prayer was? One sentence. It's just one, and it's one, it's, what is it? Let this cup pass from me. It's, uh, I want this to go away. So even that's not a bad prayer. God, I don't like this season. I don't like this situation. Would you please allow for this to go away? I would like for it to come to an end now, whatever it is. And that's an okay prayer, but you need to pray it. Right? You need to lean into God with those things. And when you're suffering, to lean into to praying. And I, I can imagine that Jesus practiced the Holy Spirit's presence. And Romans 8 talks about how the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And that Jesus just prayed short sentence prayers and allowed for the Spirit to intercede for him in the same way we should do. And we don't need to think that God's answering our prayers of suffering because of our many words. Right? We can just come to him with a real simple, God, I don't like this. Can you please make it stop? And then just sit and just wait and allow for him to move and breathe and touch your heart. 
I know I've hit this before, but if, I, I just you're going to leave here, and I don't get to see you for another week, maybe. So the, the world gets five days with you. I only get one 40-minute moment with you. So I'm going to hit this again. Can you think logically with me for this again? I, um, I do. I, sometimes I've, I've had stress in my life. You know how I deal with stress? I deal with it. You ever heard of that? Like, that's stressing me out. The, there's a... Um, the car is, is, has a break in it, or the, the, you know, the pipes need to be changed, or something needs to be fixed, whatever. It stresses me out, so I go fix it. You ever do that? Are you with me? Okay, sometimes, yeah. <laughs> right, so that's how I deal with stress. I have a sermon to prepare on Sunday, so I, or preach on Sunday, so I deal with it on Thursday. You know, I have, I, when I have stress, I deal with it. Now, there are things in my life and things in your life that are out of my control and out of your control, right? That's when the real stress happens because it's like, I can't, I can't fix that. I can't deal with that. I can't muscle my way through this. That's why I hate golf, right? I can't fix this, right? I can't hit that ball hard as like I want to, like really hard, right? So I can't fix this. So what do I do? Nothing. Because I can't do anything. And then the stress rises. The anxiety rises, right? And then that, it's at that moment that you say, I need a drink. Or I need to smoke some weed. Or I need a... <laughs> That's not an amen. <laughs> I need to do this, right? Don't amen that. Got a counseling for you in the back, right? Brad's right there waiting for you. We're, we, go, we, we turn to our vices in those moments. And then we see Jesus, and I just want to remind you, Jesus is in a situation where it's, it's in his control, but he has to be obedient. It's bigger than him. And he turns to prayer. Who's the one person that can fix your problem bigger than you? God. What's going what's to be the result of the problem after you smoke out or have a bunch of drinks? You're going to wake up, you're going to come to, and the problem's still there. So the re- the solution to fixing the problem is appealing to the God of the universe who's bigger than the problem. Stop running to the substances. They are not solutions. They're not solutions. They're just blind guides that lead you in a circle right back where you started. They are not helpful, and that's how they become addictive. Because you just keep going back, it's still there. It's still there. It's still there. And then next thing you know, you're addicted. Don't run to those things. Third, Jesus accepts his cup. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Perhaps some of the hardest words ever said by anyone. Turns to God and says, I can stop this. I can, do, I can run away. I can sin. Not my will, but yours be done. And he releases the entire thing to the Lord. I think this is the true test of the Christian life. Is when we're able to look at our circumstances, however horrible they are, and we say, God, I don't understand why. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know. This is so hard. I wish this would end. And we're able to say to God, but nevertheless, your will be done, not mine. And I will go through this fire. I'll go through this journey. I'll go through this season praying and leaning on you. It's the truest test of the Christian life. And this is what Jesus wanted for his disciples and it's what he wanted for us.
I want to finish with a story. So just close your Bibles, relax. Last day of skiing. You don't want to be out there. It's gross. It hasn't snowed in like 20 hours. Uh, This is a picture of a guy named Chuck Colson, everybody's grandpa. He died in 2012, and he was famous for prison ministry. Like he's in my world, I never knew him other than the guy who did prison ministry. And he did Bible studies in prisons. And he he wasn't in prisons. He was like doing it from the outside. And it was so cool because if you think about it, he would he would go and he'd bring these Bible studies all over the United States. Men and women would go to these Bible studies, get Christ changed, and they'd come out and become functioning, contributing members of society. And it's just like he's done more. He's, we don't even realize it. We will never see the full effects of this. But he's probably done more to stop crime and to help criminals than any other human in the 20th century. I mean, he's just done so much. I never knew his story. Like, why, how did he get there? So let me tell you the story of Chuck Colson real quick. Chuck Colson was a Marine, and then he became a lawyer. And he was a no-holds-barred, no-pulled-punches, knock-you-out lawyer. He did not care. He, he had one moral code, I win, right? He's the lawyer. That's the guy you want working for you, right? I mean, he's this tough lawyer. No Christianity, no faith. When he's 38 years old, this personality, this bigger-than-life personality gets the attraction of a president who's running for office, a man who's running for office. The man's name is Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon's running for office, and he hires Chuck Colson to be the bad guy. The behind-the-scenes screws, you know, to the wall. I mean, the kind of the guy who really makes everything kind of happen in a nasty kind of way, right? You don't want Chuck Colson showing up at your door, that guy. And so he, he hires him, and as you know, Richard Nixon wins the election. And then um, it's around that time, a little thing happens that's called Watergate. It starts to kind of come out. And, uh, and Watergate is named after a hotel where some spying things went on. Um, I, maybe like the Russian collusion stuff. I don't know. I get kind of lost in it all. But that kind of thing. I mean, very intense, right? So there's this Watergate thing that's happening. No, it doesn't matter, though, because re-election's coming. Chuck Colson is even given more authority and more power. And Nixon wins, despite Watergate, a landslide victory. Like, it's, it's a huge victory for a president. So Nixon wins again, and Colson's the one. He gets all the credit. And so Chuck Colson, in his late 30s, early 40s, has risen to this point of, I have the ear of the most powerful man in the world, and he trusts me to do what I need to do. He has risen to great, great, link, uh, great, great success in his eyes. And so the Watergate scandal continues to gain some traction. And so the Nixon, camp, Nixon uh, people need a fall guy. And so they turn to Colson. And they fire him. They remove him from his position. And Chuck Colson, in his biography, said, that's fine. It's politics. I get it. And so he just goes back to practicing law. He's like, whatever. I'll do it again. I'll rise back up. So, I mean, he's just kind of that kind of grit guy. So he goes back to practicing law, and he has this meeting with this man. Um, His name is Tom Phillips. He's the CEO of Raytheon. I didn't know what Raytheon did, so I Googled it. You know what they do? They make rockets, missiles, you know, bad, cool stuff, right? It's a big client. So he's called in to meet with his client. And funny thing about Tom Phillips, the weekend before the meeting, so Saturday the weekend, Monday the meeting, (laughs) he 
he goes to a Billy Graham crusade and gets saved. So now Chuck Colson, bad dog Chuck, is coming to meet with Tom, and he's a new Christian. You know how new Christians are. They're crazy. So here he has this new client, wealthy client, and he's a believer. And so they do the lawyer thing and the client thing. And at the very end of the meeting, Chuck Colson says, and Tom turned to me and he said, uh, this weekend I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And if you would like to talk more about Jesus, I would love to have lunch with you sometime and talk to you about Jesus. Chuck, being a non-religious man, said, that would be very nice. Thank you for your time. And scooted out the door as fast as he could. Just got out of there. He's like, that was awkward, but he's a high-paying client, so I'm going to keep him around. But that was really weird. That's how I thought. Life goes on. Watergate gets bigger and bigger. You guys know what Watergate is, right? I mean, the, the, all the political stuff that's happening. He's in the news now, all this stuff. In fact, he writes in his biography, um, as, as things are getting, are getting worse, he says, I would wake up in the middle of the night, drink four scotches, and get stressed about prison. Uh, he would see the press saying things about, about him that were not true, and he would try to clear his name with writings and responses, but no one would believe him. His circumstances were out of his control. He calls up Tom in complete desperation, the guy who, went, who became a Christian, and he says, I need to talk to you about God. Tom invites him to his house at night, and they spend hours talking. And uh, Chuck says two things that stand out from that night. One, Tom read to him John 3, Jesus' talk with Nicodemus. And he also read to him portions of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. And he said he never, he did not at that moment put his faith in Christ. But Tom said before he left, Tom said, can I pray for you, Chuck? And Chuck said, sure. And as Tom prayed, Chuck began to cry. And Chuck would say, I don't know. It was almost, you know, the scene at Seinfeld, what's this watery substance coming from my eyes? I mean, it's that kind of experience. It's like, I have no idea why I'm crying, you know. It was just the weirdest thing. He said, felt this flood of emotion. And Chuck then goes to the car. And he gets in his car. And then he just starts crying really crying, like ugly cry, like big cry. And he tries to drive home. And on his way home, it, he's crying so hard, he can't see. So he pulls over to the side of the road, and he gives his life to, the God, to God. He gives his life fully on to Jesus. He's like, I don't understand it. I don't know it. I just know that this is the God I've been looking for, and this is the Christ I need. And he totally gives his heart and life to Jesus. Now, when I read the story, I'm thinking, everything's going to be okay because this is like a Christian movie, and everything works out when you give your life to Jesus, right? Surely this is going to work out now for him. And then sure enough, it does. There's a plea bargain offered to him. They say the, the uh, prosecute, prosecuting attorney comes to him and says, listen, Chuck, we will give you, um, we will let you scoot out of here. You know jail time, no nothing. You just go practice law. You keep doing life. All we need you to do is admit to this part of Watergate, that you did this. Now, Chuck said, I did do Watergate. My voice is on the tapes. I am definitely guilty of Watergate, but I didn't do that. And they said, well, we need you to admit to that if you want the plea bargain. And he says, <laughs> he turned down the offer stating, I am a Christian and I cannot lie. It just gets worse. So he loses the plea bargain. He's going to go to jail. He goes to trial, and then he does something even more crazy. He goes to trial, and he says, um, he not only says, or he not only turns down the plea bargain, but when asked if he's guilty, he says, yes, I did it. 
I am guilty of Watergate. I am guilty of this, this, and this. In fact, his statement was really long and convoluted and didn't understand it all. Um, but he gave exact reasons for what he was guilty of with, with Watergate. And he, the press was so shocked by it, they, when he walked out of the courthouses, they asked him what happened. And he says this, What happened in court today was the court's will and the Lord's will, and I can work for him in prison or out. And just let God handle the circumstances. Chuck goes to jail in July 1974. I still have not been born yet. <laughs> so this is all new for me. All right. um, so Chuck goes to jail. He goes to prison. Um, he was uh, disbarred from being an attorney. could never be an attorney again. And other th- horrible things happen to his family while he's in prison. It's a really bad thing. And all the while, he holds on to his little brand new faith, right? through all these horrible, horrible circumstances. And the, he says the thing that got him through was his Bible and a Bible study. Well, he gets out. He gets out in 1975. Um, and it's, it's a really neat story to, to go through. You should read about it sometime. And he's standing, the, the, the way it works is he's standing in the mirror and he's looking at himself. And he's thinking about how he made it. And, and God, he says, I feel like God told me you need to put a Bible study in every prison in America. And so he does. He actually almost did it. And think about it. Who else could have? I mean, he partnered with George W. He partnered with these. He had, a, he had access to presidents. He had access to uh, governors. He had access to senators. He had access to wardens that we would never have access to. Like if you sat in today and went home and looked in the mirror and said, God told you to put a prison in every, I mean, a Bible a prison in every Bible study. A Bible study in every prison. I feel that way. A Bible study in every prison, right? You'd be like, I, I can't do that. But Chuck could. And the only way he knew to, the only reason he knew to do that is because he went to prison. And the only reason he really got to prison is because he followed God. And all that suffering led him right back around to what God had planned for his life. And I just want to encourage you, my friends. If you are suffering, there is a plan. There is a purpose for it. God doesn't let suffering happen for nothing. He has a purpose for your suffering. Stay close to him. Lean into him in prayer. and Do not let temptation befall you that you may fall away. And be close to God during this time. And wait and see what the fruit of the suffering may be. Let's pray.